this morning, you might want to find a couple of passages. We're going to look at two places in the scriptures this morning. Our Sunday morning sermon series beginning this morning is a study through the book of Philippians. So you can turn to Philippians 1. And when you find Philippians 1, you might also find Acts 16. Acts 16. How many of you, while you find those passages and get your notes out, how many of you had parents or have parents, present tense, who made you or make you write thank you notes to people? Raise your hand. If you're raising your hand, you had good parents. It's good to write thank you notes. I had parents that made me do that, made my sister do that. And I remember when I was a kid, I hated it. There was nothing worse in my mind. That just shows you how ungrateful I was, but just nothing worse than having to sit down and write a thank you note. And my mom would proofread my thank you notes. So, like, she would look at it and she would say, No, that's not good enough. You need to try better. You need to write something else. And she wouldn't tell me what to write, but she would just say, You got to do better than that. I couldn't get by with just a thank you, Landon. Had to write something and had to mean it. And I hated it at the time, but looking back on it, I'm grateful uh, that she instilled that in me and, and taught me the value of that. And forced me to be thankful, even when left to myself, I was not necessarily all that thankful. I mention that because the book of Philippians is essentially a thank you letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi. And I want to explain this to you. Paul ended up in prison. And in the ancient world, they had this strange belief that if you did something to get yourself thrown in prison... The government was not responsible to keep you warm and fed and alive. They just put you there. And if you were going to stay warm and stay fed and stay alive, you were basically dependent on your friends or your family or on the charity of strangers to give you something to wear, to give you something to eat, and to meet your daily needs. And so that was Paul's situation. He gets thrown in prison for talking to people about Jesus, for, for preaching about Jesus. And some of the places he goes, he stirs up so much excitement and controversy that there's riots and he has enemies who are lying about him. And so he's in prison and he's not getting three square meals a day. And he's not getting a fresh uh, set of sheets every Monday morning and he doesn't get a rec yard or a weight room or anything like that. He's just there. He did have friends in Philippi. And his friends in Philippi got together and they said, we ought to help Paul out. And I don't know how they picked this guy, but they picked a guy named Epaphroditus. And they said, Epaphroditus, we're going to collect this offering and we're going to give it to you. And you're going to go to Paul where he's in prison. And scholars debate which prison he was in and which city he was in. But you're going to go to Paul in prison and you're going to take him this gift from us. And so Epaphroditus did that. He took the gift from the church in Philippi to Paul. And Paul responded by writing this letter. We call it the book of Philippians. Really, it's a thank you letter from Paul to this church. And Paul is saying, thank you for keeping me alive. And it's strange that this thank you letter we call Philippians is one of the most popular books in the whole Bible. Many of you have told me over the last few weeks since I've said we're going to study Philippians and maybe I've posted a picture on social media about here's the new logo for our Philippian series. Lots of you have come to me and said, Philippians, that's my favorite book in the Bible. I've been a pastor for 10 years and I've preached in lots of different books of the Bible. No one has ever come and said that to me about Luke, about the Gospel of Matthew, about the Gospel of John. 
I've preached through Colossians. I've preached through Galatians at other churches. Preached through Psalms. Preached through Proverbs. No one's ever come to me and said, that is my favorite book. But when we announced we're studying Philippians, I had at least a dozen of you, either on social media or a text message, or you came by and you visited with me, you said, Philippians is my favorite book in the Bible. It's not as cram-packed with theology as the book of Romans. Some things in Romans are hard to understand. It's not as confrontational as Galatians. Paul's pretty in your face to the church in Galatia. It's not as perplexing as the letters to the Corinthians. There's some things in those letters that are just hard to wrap your mind around. It's just an encouraging and uplifting letter that Paul wrote to his friends in this town to say thank you. Thank you for the gift that you sent me. And to encourage them to continue to do exactly what they're doing. When he writes this letter, he's not correcting bad theology. He's not saying like the church in Galatia, you guys have abandoned the gospel. And he's not saying like he does to the Corinthians, you guys have fallen off the deep end morally. You're doing crazy stuff and you need to knock it off. He's writing to his friends and he's saying Thank you. So one well-known pastor says that the book of Philippians is filled with coffee cup verses. Verses you would put on your coffee cup in the morning. You wake up and you take a sip and you read that verse and you just say, Ah, Philippians, it's going to be a good day. Or Maybe you put it on a t-shirt, a verse from Philippians, and you wear that t-shirt. Or maybe you share it on social media, you put it up on your Facebook page or your Twitter account, a verse from the book of Philippians, right? It's just filled with sort of warm, fuzzy verses. And we need to acknowledge at the beginning of this series that that's a very dangerous thing for us as we jump into a study through the book of Philippians. Because if you take one verse out of the Bible, you understand the Bible's not a dictionary, right? You can open the dictionary and you can pull out one entry and you can make sense of it. You don't need to know the word before it or after it. Right? It's not like Encyclopedia Britannica, if you had a set of those when you were growing up, and you could pull out one volume and turn to one page and read one article. You don't need to read what's before it or after it. You make sense of the article. The Bible's not that kind of book. And when you pull one verse out of the Bible and you ignore everything before it and everything after it, you can make just about any verse in the Bible say just about whatever you want it to say. A lot of theologians have argued it this way. A verse without a context is a pretext for a proof text. It's just sort of a fancy way of saying, look, if you're going to ignore the context of Scripture and you're going to pull one verse here and one verse there, you can prove anything that you want to prove. This is how cults proliferate and how they convince people like you and me that they're right. They open their Bible and they read a verse to you. And they say, look, it's right here in the Bible. They just ignore what's before it and they ignore everything after it and they focus on one little verse and it's easy to twist it and make it say whatever you want it to say. And maybe the best example of this in all of the Bible is found right here in the book of Philippians, Philippians 4.13, that says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can win the big game through Jesus because he doesn't love the other team. I can get the promotion at work. I can get it because he hates all the other guys who applied for it. I can do all things. And you ignore what Paul meant when he wrote that to the church in Philippi. He wasn't talking about the big game, the football game. He wasn't talking about you getting a promotion at work. He wasn't talking about you realizing all of your dreams and all of your wildest hopes and fantasies coming true. He's talking about starving to death. 
I can do it all, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. Even if I starve to death, I can do that through Christ. And you read it in that context and you say, I don't really want that on my coffee cup. That's not quite the, the idea I had in mind. It's a dangerous thing. And hopefully as we go verse by verse through Philippians, we come across some of these coffee cup verses. We'll be careful as we come to them. I want to back up and just talk about Acts 16 for a minute. So if you have Acts 16, you might find it. We're going to look at a few verses. Acts 16 tells the story of Paul's first visit to Philippi, very first visit. The year was about 50 AD. Paul was on his second missionary journey. This is not the first mission trip he's ever been on, right? The first trip is out of the way. He's a seasoned veteran now. He sets back out, and he's got a plan for where he wants to go and what he wants to do on this mission trip. 50 AD were about 20 years, about two decades, roughly, after Jesus dies on the cross and he's buried And he raises from the dead, and he ascends to heaven. Twenty years have passed, 50 A.D. Paul's going on this missionary trip. And Paul had the whole thing planned out, exactly what he wanted to do on this trip. Paul was like Chris Harrington. How many of you guys have been on a mission trip with Chris Harrington? This guy has everything planned out. It's unbelievable. You find yourself in an airport on the other side of the world, you need to use the bathroom, you just find Chris. Chris, where's the bathroom? He'll tell you exactly where it's at. And he'll tell you, don't go to the one down there. That one's no good. Go over here to this one. This is secret lounge, special bathroom. This is where you want to go. You'll find yourself on the other side of the world. Just say, Chris, I'm hungry. And Chris will say, I know exactly where we need to go. There's a popcorn stand at the Nakimot here. They got the best popcorn in the world. We're going to roll up in there. We're going to get some popcorn. He knows it all. He's got it all planned out, detailed to a point. And Paul was exactly the same way, right? He knew exactly what he wanted to do on this trip. There's only one problem. That was not God's plan. Paul said, I'm going to do this, and then we're going to go here, we're going to do this, we're going to strengthen these churches, we're going to visit all these places we went before, we're going to try to encourage them, and God's plan was, no, that's not what I want you to do on this trip, Paul. And I want you to look at Acts 16, because it took Paul a little while to get this through his brain. Look at Acts 16, 16. They, they went throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is in the part of the world we call Turkey, okay? Back then it was called just this big province of Asia, part of the Roman Empire. They go through Phrygia, they go through Galatia, and they have been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's an interesting verse because the whole mission trip was a mission trip to Asia. Not the Asia we think about, but what we call Turkey. Paul says, this is where we're going to go. This is what we're going to do. We're going to travel around here, and we're going to talk to these churches. And you read right here in verse 6 that they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I mean, think about this. Paul sent out his fundraising letters to all these people, and he said, we're going to Asia. I need your help. We're going to Asia. That's what we're going to do. We're going to strengthen the churches. I need your help. And people wrote in their checks and supported him. And now he's in the middle of the trip, and he's forbidden to go. Look at this next verse, verse 7. When they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. And I know that you don't know where Bithynia is, but let me just tell you where Bithynia is. It's in Asia. They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia. What do they try to do? Let's take a, like a turnaround and go back to Asia here. No, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I know that's what you want to go, Paul. I know that's how you fundraised. I know that's what you told everybody you're going to do. That's your plan, but that's not my plan. Look at this next verse. 
A vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia, in case you don't know, Macedonia is in Greece, what we call Greece, not in Asia. So this is a man from a different place. He's standing there, and he's urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul's a little bit slow on the uptake here, and so God spells it out for him real plain. A guy wearing a shirt with Macedonia University on it. (laughs) Hello, Paul. Come here. We need your help. Forbidden to go to Asia. The Spirit of Jesus did not let them go back up to Bithynia, which was in Asia. And he gets this vision, and God says, Paul, I know that's your plan, but I want you to go to Macedonia. Essentially, I want you to go to Europe with the gospel not back toward Asia. This is an important part of the story, right? There's lots of things in Acts 16 we could talk about. I just want to mention a couple of applications of this idea that Paul wanted to go to Asia and God wouldn't let him go there. Thoughts from Acts 16, you ready? God has a way of turning small things into big things. That's how he likes to work. Jesus said it himself in Mark chapter 4. He said, the kingdom of God, what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, the tiniest, smallest seed. And you plant that seed in your garden, and here comes this big, giant bush, this big tree from one tiny seed. That's what the kingdom's like. You start with something small, and then in its own time, in its own way, it becomes something very big. Listen, when Paul finally gets the message that he's supposed to go to Macedonia, and he crosses the Aegean Sea, and he goes to Philippi, for the very first time, the gospel of Jesus Christ enters what we would call European soil, away from Asia to Macedonia. He is now right in the backyard of the Roman Empire. And guess what happened? Something very small. He didn't go on this detour to this first stop and huge, giant revival breaks out. You know, like maybe that's how we would think. We would say, okay, God doesn't want me to go here. We had this great trip planned. We have to cancel our reservations, and now we're going to go here. Maybe that's because God's going to do something really big. It's going to be really great. Get ready for a revival. We need extra response cards. We need extra counselors down at the front at the invitation time. It didn't happen. He goes to Philippi, and almost nobody takes notice. So few, in fact, that Luke details individually the folks that responded. There was a woman named Lydia. She was a wealthy woman. Her and her entire household, could have been a significant number of people, could have been two or three or four people, respond to the gospel, and they join the church in Philippi. Then there's a story of this slave girl possessed by a demon, used by her owners to make money and predict the future. Paul cast the demon out of her. We're not told that she accepts Jesus and that she becomes a believer, but we assume from the context of the story that the men who were using her to make money certainly did not want to spend their own money to take care of her because they were very angry with Paul. So we assume Lydia and the church took this little girl in. Then you add blue-collar Joe, the jailer in Philippi. He eventually gets saved, he and all of his household. Again, could have been a significant number of people, could have been two, three, or four. Along the way, they pick up a guy named Epaphroditus, and we know a few other ladies in the church. I'm just saying this to you. It wasn't like thousands of people came to Jesus in Philippi. It was a very small beginning. But it was a beginning. And it was the first time the gospel of Jesus was ever preached on what we would call European soil. 
And that gospel took root in Philippi, small root, small plant growing, but it changed Philippi. And eventually that gospel, as it spread, it took root in the Roman Empire and it changed the Roman Empire. As it takes root in the Roman Empire, it changes the entire Western world, United States included, Texas included, Odessa included, Emmanuel Baptist Church included. And it begins right here in Acts 16 when God says to Paul, I don't want you to do that, I want you to do this. And it's a very small beginning that God turns into something huge. Listen, you may sit in this room this morning and say, I'm no preacher, I'm no teacher, I'm no missionary, just a regular person. What kind of impact can I have for the kingdom? Guess what? You can have a small impact. I don't want to just pump you up and say you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you and rip it out of context. Let's just be honest. You can have a small impact. I can have a small impact. But God can take what's small and he can turn it into something big. He did it with Paul in his visit to Philippi. Okay, That's sort of on a, a big picture. God can take small things and turn them into big things. Now let's make it even more personal. You ready? God can take the biggest disappointments in your life And he can turn them into some of your greatest memories. And I realize as you fill that in, you think, well, that's kind of like Joel Osteen type language. What are you talking about? Take your worst and make it your best. I don't know. Look, I'm not telling you, no matter how life goes, you should just smile and be happy and it's no big deal and everything's going to be good in the end. Because I know sometimes it's not good in the end immediately in this life. And I don't want you to just smile through pain and pretend it's all okay and put on some sort of fake, phony face about life. What I'm talking about is Romans 8, which says, God works all things for the good, the ultimate good. Not the good that you want to come out of it, but for the ultimate good of the people who love him. If you love God, he is working all things in your life for your ultimate good. Good, And he explains what that good is right there in Romans 8. You can go back and read it this afternoon. He says, your ultimate good is that you become more like Christ. If you love God, you have confidence that he can take the biggest disappointments in your life and work them towards your greatest memories later and your ultimate good, making you more like Christ. So think about Paul. Paul's a human. We know he's human because he he just doesn't really listen to God. When God's saying, I want you to go to this other place, don't go to Asia, he's having a hard time getting it. And the message comes again and again. You say, oh, it's just like me. I have a hard time knowing or, or listening to God. What does he want me to do? But Paul was human, and he had planned this whole thing out. And the reason he kept trying to go to Asia is because that's really what he had been hoping to do. And God saying, no, I'm not going to let you do that was a great disappointment. What happens to you and me when we face disappointment in life? You get frustrated. You get whiny. Maybe you get angry. If you can't move past it, maybe that anger turns into bitterness. And maybe some of you are sitting in the room right now and you're saying, you know, I can't say that God's given me a big raw deal. I just just feel disappointed with where I'm at. I just feel discouraged that this was not really the plan that I had for myself. Maybe you say, the job that I have is not the job that I want. I just, I wanted something different. I had plans for something different. Or maybe some of you say, the place I live is not the place I want to live. I'm stuck here in this dusty West Texas town. I don't want to be here. 
smells funny sometimes in the mornings and dirt blows everywhere and I just, I'm disappointed. I wanted to be somewhere else. Maybe you say, you know, family and friends have disappointed me. They've let me down. They've not been the person or the people that I thought they were. They didn't come through for me like I thought they would. I'm disappointed in people. I'm not telling you to just smile and pretend it's all okay. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's good. It's all good. But I am saying to you that God can take some of the biggest disappointments in your life and turn them for your good. And he did that for Paul. Listen, when you read the letters that Paul wrote to these different churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Corinthians, Thessalonians, this is his favorite church. It's obvious when you read the letter. He's not barking down anybody's throat. He's not telling them to repent. He's not telling them to knock it off. He's not telling them to get with the program. He's just saying, man, I love you guys. I wish I could be back in Philippi and see you. These were his best friends, his favorite church, and he would have never gone there if God had allowed him to go to Asia. These were the people who sent him a gift when he was in prison that kept him alive. And he never would have received it if God had let Paul continue on his itinerary as he had it planned. He can take your big disappointments and he can turn them for good. Leads me to the big idea, not just of our passage this morning, which we're about to read, but of the whole book of Philippians. The big idea of Philippians is this. The gospel gives us reason to rejoice. The good news about Jesus Christ gives us reason to rejoice. We'll unpack it just for a minute. Some of this is on your outline. Some of this will be on the screen. What is the gospel? Very simply, the holy God has made a way for sinful people to enjoy his presence. How did he do that? Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, and he died on a cross for our rebellion and sin. What does he want from me? He demands that we repent of our sin, turn from it, change our mind about it, and believe the truth about him, and give our lives to follow him. That's the gospel. Some of you this morning say, I've never heard that in my entire life. I thought God wanted my money. I thought I had to be a good person to go to heaven when I died. I thought it was all up to me to earn it and deserve it and to pay for it. That's something I've never heard before. If you've never heard that before and you want to talk to somebody about it, listen, one of our pastors, one of our elders would love to visit with you about the gospel. What does it mean to acknowledge your sin to believe that God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He's given you life and hope and eternity in his son. And how does that change your life? How does that move you from a person sort of stuck in a rut and hopeless in life to somebody who has great reason to rejoice? That's the gospel. For those of you who are kind of nerdy like me, you like numbers and you like sort of statistics on things, you'll be interested to know that the word gospel occurs more frequently in the book of Philippians than in any of the other books that Paul wrote. Some of the other books are longer, so you find the word in there more. But more often, more frequently, in this book, Paul writes the word gospel, good news. And this is what he's talking about. God has made a way for sinful people to enjoy his presence through the death and the resurrection of his son, dying for our sin and paying our price, paying our our penalty, and calling us to repentance and faith in Jesus. This is a book about the gospel, and it's a book about rejoicing. Rejoicing. 
you'll find the word rejoicing in 118 and 217 and 228 and 31 and 44 and 410. All the way throughout the book of Philippians, Paul keeps talking about rejoicing. What does it mean to rejoice? It means you worship with joy. You worship with joy. So we're not talking about like I'm rejoicing that the Dallas Cowboys are about to win the Super Bowl this year. Okay? I'm excited about that, but that's not rejoicing because I don't want to worship the Cowboys. That's just something I'm happy about, something I'm excited about. When we talk about rejoicing, it's God-focused. It's not football team-focused. It's not children-focused. It's not family-focused. It's not necessarily even church-focused. It's God-focused. It is worship directed toward God, ascribing worth to Him, and doing it not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of ritual or ceremony, but doing it from your heart with joy. This is a book about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when it takes root in your life, the overflow is rejoicing. When you get the gospel of Jesus Christ, you become a person who worships with joy. So here's the thing. I'm going to let you go back and read Acts 16, the rest of it. You can read about Lydia and the slave girl, and you can read about the jailer and all the things that happened there. This morning, I know our time is short, but I want us to look at the first two verses, just the introduction to Philippians. And I want you to see a few truths as we set the stage for this study. So look in your Bible, Philippians 1, verse 1 and verse 2. Scriptures say this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three simple lessons I want you to see here and then we'll wrap it up. Number one, just like Paul and just like Timothy, we find freedom when we become slaves of Jesus. I know that our society has a hard time reconciling the idea of slavery and freedom. Not just our society, the human mind, the human heart has a hard time putting those ideas together. But Paul and Timothy found freedom when they became slaves, slaves to Jesus. When you look at verse 1, I know that the word says servant. They're servants of Christ Jesus, but you probably have a footnote that says the real word is bondservant or slave or bondslave. And because slave has such a racial connotation in our society, most translators go with the idea of servant instead of slave. But what he's saying is, I'm the slave, he's the master. And I want you to understand, when you hear Paul say, I'm a slave, Timothy's a slave, doesn't mean life is miserable for them. It means they finally found true freedom in life. They found it. Listen, you live in a society and a culture that desperately wants freedom. We want freedom. I saw one example of this this last week. I'm not even going to put the, the picture on the screen. It's the latest special edition of National Geographic. It's called The Gender Issue. And I'll just summarize the whole thing for you. You have the freedom to do and be whatever you want to do and whatever you want to be. You're free to do whatever, to be whoever. You're free. You can change gender. You can change identity. You can change attraction. You're free to make those decisions. 
That's emblematic of the desire in our society to find freedom, to cast off all rules, all restraint, and to declare that we are autonomous. We're a law to ourselves. We can do whatever we want to do, and no one has the right to tell us that we're wrong to do it. People want freedom. And when you see it spelled out in society, it shouldn't necessarily gross you out. It should break your heart because the people that are looking so desperately for freedom are looking in a place they will never find it. The road they're going down only leads to bondage. But they're looking for freedom. And I'm telling you, as crazy as it sounds to our brains, as hard as it is to get through our hearts, you find freedom when you become a slave of Jesus. Look at these scriptures. Two verses I'll point out to you. John eight thirty six. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's offering you freedom. Look what he says in Matthew eleven thirty. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not like these other slave masters, these other things and ideas and ideologies and, and actions that will enslave you and ruin your life. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and I'm offering you freedom. How do you find it? You become a slave of Jesus. You make him the Lord of your life. You listen to him and you believe what he says. You follow him and you go wherever he leads. When he goes against the current in your culture or your society or your, your day and your time and your environment, you go against the current with him and you find freedom. It's not the faux freedom, the fake freedom that says you can do whatever you want and then you wake up at the end of that road and it's a dead-end cul-de-sac of slavery, but it's real freedom. The second idea is this from Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Just like the church in Philippi, we become saints through faith in Jesus. Saints. Most of you probably don't think of yourself as a saint. Most of us are a little bit confused because of how the Roman Catholic Church talks about saints and sainthood. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, all you have to do to become a saint is live a really exemplary, fantastic, amazingly moral life, perform two miracles. Die a heroic death and be appointed or nominated or championed by a pope. That's all. That's all you got to do. It's not the biblical view of sainthood. So when the New Testament talks about saints, it's talking about people who have been made holy. Not people who are holy, people who have been made holy holy, people who have been set apart, not by anything that they've done, but by what God has done for them. And when Paul writes to this church, he writes to all the saints. And he's saying to his friends in Philippi, there's an equality when we gather together in the body of Christ. Yes, we recognize overseers, that's the office of pastor or elder, so he mentions those guys here. Yes, he, he says, I know there's deacons at the church there, he acknowledges those guys, but he doesn't just write to the quote-unquote leadership, he writes to the saints. That's his introduction. I'm writing to all the holy ones in Christ Jesus. Not just the big wigs, not just the people in charge, but to the saints. He's not just writing to the people with money like Lydia, the people who have the ability to maybe have more influence because they can throw their money around in a church. 
He's not just focusing on those people. He's writing to the jailers in Philippi. He's writing to people who used to be possessed by demons and owned by other human beings, little slave girls. He's writing to a guy named Epaphroditus, who, as far as we know, didn't do a whole lot of preaching, but he was willing to risk his life to take a pile of money to a man who was starving in prison. He's writing to these people and he's saying, you guys are saints. It's not because you've done anything. You're saints in Christ Jesus. Because of his life and his death, you've been set apart. You have been made holy, even though in your heart you're corrupt and sinful and selfish. You've been made holy. You people are saints. That's why Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He makes his people holy. last idea is this, very simple. Just like the church in Philippi, God's grace in Jesus gives us peace with God the Father. He says the same thing to the church in Colossae, Colossians 1.20. He says that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. He says it this way in Philippians 1.2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand grace is God giving you the opposite of what you deserve. The Bible says that all you deserve from God, all I deserve from God, is instant damnation and eternal damnation. That's all he owes us. And when God gives you grace, he gives you the opposite. Not only does he withhold what he ought to give you, what he owes you, but he gives you all the riches of life and eternity that can be yours in Jesus Christ. It's giving you the opposite of what you deserve. And when you get that, you find yourself at peace with God. Not an enemy of God, not an object of his wrath, but at peace with God. Paul says these same things to all these churches that he writes letters to. He talks about grace to you and peace to you, grace and peace, grace and peace. And as we kick off this study, my prayer for you, for for those sitting in this room, for those who might listen online, my prayer is that you know peace with God. Not because you just sit back and say, you know, my sin's not that big a deal. I'm a pretty good person and, you know, me and God are cool. But because you know who you are as a sinner. And you find hope in what God has done for you through Christ. I don't know if you noticed, but in these first two verses, it's really redundant. Two verses, just a few dozen words. Christ Jesus shows up three times. Right out of the gate. We're servants of Christ Jesus. To the saints in Christ Jesus. To the people who know grace and peace with the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's beating it into our brain. He's saying the only way you find grace and the only way you know peace with God is through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way for you to find freedom. You don't find freedom in casting off all restraint and saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You find freedom in submitting to Jesus Christ. It's the way you become holy. It's not by performing miracles. It's not by having a a bunch of cardinals and bishops vote yes or no on you and a pope giving you some sort of approval. It's through Jesus. It's where you find grace from God. This is where you find God giving you not what you deserve, but giving you the opposite of what you deserve. 
So my prayer for you this morning and my prayer through this series is that you will find these things in Jesus because you're going to find the book of Philippians is a Jesus-centered book. From beginning to end, we're going to talk about Jesus over and over and over again. So my prayer is that you focus on Jesus, that you're driven towards Jesus, and that as a church family, we find our center on Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for this letter that Paul wrote to his friends. And we study it as history, and we understand that Paul wrote it, and he thought about it, and he sent it to people that he cared about. And we also study it as inspired by your spirit, as eternally true, as perfect. Father, And we believe that there's truths and lessons and applications in this book that we need in our lives. And so we pray as we kick off this series, that you would help us to see Jesus in this book, help us to find grace from you and peace with you in this book. Father, and I pray for those in the room. I pray for those who are disappointed. I pray for those who are frustrated and angry. I pray for those who who have had plans changed, not small plans, but big plans Father, I pray that we would be intentional about going where you lead us and trusting you and following you and rejoicing in the gospel, not our circumstances, not our situation, but rejoicing in the good news about Jesus Christ. Father, we have hope because you are a great God and you've been gracious to us in your son. We pray in his name. Amen.